Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. I'm here with Marilyn. Hey, guys. And we have special guest, Craig Smith. Hey, guys. <laughs> Craig, I'll let you give your intro because um, I, again, didn't have six sheets of paper to write down all the, the multifaceted roles you play right now. So can you give us like the Cliff's notes of, uh, of who you are in your job title? Yeah. Uh... My name is Craig Smith. I am a physical therapist in Tucson, Arizona. I started a clinic a few years back called Smith Performance Center. Uh, it's probably like the least creative name if you actually think of it. Uh, I remember <laughs> me and Sarah were like trying to think of the name. Sarah's my wife, also business partner. And uh, that was the best we could do. Like I, I, my last name is Smith. And I was like performance center. So physical therapist at uh, SPC um, involved in another clinic up in Flagstaff. Uh, we also have a company called Evolve Eats, uh, provides food services. Uh, also in Flagstaff, we plan on moving it down here to Tucson this upcoming year. And then uh, involved in a data analytics company that works on improving the outcomes for physical therapists uh, called Amptimum. Uh, involved in some research, looking at injury prediction, do some lecturing on the side. So I'm adjunct faculty with uh, NAU. And uh, otherwise, I just try to stay busy with work. So, yeah. No other hobbies. And, and then like, just, just for the listeners, listeners, can you give us a little bit about your athletic background? The word on the street is used to run pretty fast. Hey, yeah. Short distances. Yeah. So I, I, I was a sprinter. I actually played uh, uh, football in college and then ended up just getting destroyed. Uh, I, I think I was mismanaged, but I think anytime somebody has an injury and it doesn't get better, they probably feel the same way. Uh, played through an injury. Um, really led to the end of my ability to play sports uh, for, for a really long time, developed a, a neuropathy that I still have to, I still work with today. So it gave me a perspective of just how important, you know, getting the right diagnosis and, uh, you know, not shutting somebody down, but giving them avenues to still be who they are, you know? So I, I don't think sometimes the, uh, I think it's easy for a provider to tell somebody to stop doing something. And it's, you know, if, if it's part of that person's identity and it's something they love, it can be very crushing. So, yeah. Yeah. So I played sports. I definitely, I never did endurance. That's for sure. Yeah. Not, not even a little bit. Well, well, but recently you did run your first marathon. I right? did run my first marathon. All right. All right. So. I, yeah, I got nervous on that. That I, 22 miles was one of the worst experiences of my life. I felt like somebody kneecapped me. <laughs> I remember, I remember cause I've talked to people getting hamstring cramps at that time. And I, and I was, so blase about what to do around it, like to help to get through. If you're starting to hamstring start to cramp, I was like, just squeeze your butt, just squeeze your butt. It'll, it'll help it. And then I had to go through that and it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> never again, never again. I'll probably try it sometime, but it was awful. It was a terrible experience. Well, it sounds like it might be a good experience for perspective as a PT though, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely gave me a perspective on that. Uh, you know, how hard it is to do some of these things. So the people that you guys are talking to and working with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I only work with people once they're hurt. So, you know, here, hearing, uh, going through was, was, was fun. It was actually fun. Awesome. Um, well, we are headed into the fall race season and I mean, world championships has been moved, but there is 70.3 worlds, which is coming right up and actually quite a few other fall Ironmans and half Ironmans. And I feel like we're kind of at that point in the year where people have been training pretty hard, training pretty hard for a while. And I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to speculate on that Mar Maryland's training peaks look somewhat similar to this, where I'm getting a lot of the notes in there, like, oh, this starts to hurt. I feel this pain today. 
And those notes are kind of starting to, to pile up a little bit. And then, you know, the next thing we do is get those phone calls and questions of like, hey, like, what should I do now? I've got this pain going on here. And I've got like a few kind of like protocols that I run through with athletes. I'm, I'm sure Marilyn has some similar things she does, but the bigger question is, is like, you know, what, what do we do with these athletes to keep them healthy and, and ready to race, especially when these are remote athletes who we can't actually like look at what's going on or, you know, and we don't know whether, or we can always say, Hey, in the best case scenario, you go see a PT, but if this person's a, a busy professional, you know, it can be hard. And hard. Well, I actually, I, I did think that was, we, we were talking a little bit before you started recording, um, maybe like an hour before. A little we bit. Recording. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you guys do right now? I mean, that we were saying that I, I feel like the, the online aspect of what you guys do as coaches and how these athletes, they, they seem to want it to be online, right? They're not coming. You're not, they're not doing the rides with you. Right. Or you're not doing the rides with them. So right now, what do you guys do? Well, when I have an athlete that gets an injury, the first thing I ask them to do is to, um, take a picture like, and point to where it hurts. I say like really, really simple. Um, can you put a circle or whatever you need to do, take a picture and send it to me and point to where it's hurting. Yeah. And then I'll have a conversation with them about, you know, what's exactly hurting. When did it start? Can you remember any defining moment? How did it come on? Um, and then I'll even get them to take a picture. If it's, you know, can you just stand in your bare feet for a minute? Can you take a picture of your shoes? Can I have a look at your shoes? take a picture of your bike shoes and I'll start to ask them to send me a lot of not only will it be a conversation about you know, with a lot of questions to try and mm -hmm. figure out what might be going on but I I literally ask them to send me photos and videos of a lot of sometimes I'm sure they're like why does Marilyn want a photo of this but yeah. I'm trying to figure out what caused the injury in the first place and what might be where it might be coming from yeah so you're starting to build like a diagnostic process that you, mm -hmm. you go, you're going through yeah I mean the, do you guys have common ones that you see a lot? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What are, what are the most common ones? I think that'd be a fun place to start. Yeah. For my, tra for triathletes, I always find it's hips, hamstrings, Achilles, post-tib tendon, um, and rotator cuff. Those are like yeah, the most common ones I see. Yeah. Same with you. Yeah. Justin? That was a pretty good rundown. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so hips, I guess occasionally like knee stuff. Um, usually that's like quad related, I think, but, and and yeah, lower leg stuff is, I see a lot of like ankles, Achilles, things like yeah. that. Um, yeah. I mean, especially this time, this time of year when people are building and it's because, so how far out are the, are your athletes if they're doing that, that, uh, 70? Um, I mean, there are a few different races coming up and I mean, I, what, like that's three weeks out. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like this kind of crunch time, that three weeks out time where things are getting like as full on as they're going to get, or even kind of just past that we're trying to get the like maximal training effect before you allow the body to recover. Yeah. I also ask a lot of questions yeah. about people's recent, their, um, their recent life, as far as like, have you been running the same route over and over again? Is there camber in the road? Tell me about how much you're sitting at your desk. Have yeah. you changed how much driving you're doing? Um, you know, like, have you, did you spend a night out on the town in high heels? If it's a female who suddenly, or even I've had guys who we found out, I found out after the fact they went out dancing all night in like dress shoes and they never do that. And they actually um, told you that they actually told me. So I'll start yeah. asking a lot of questions as far as equipment terrain, um, 
you know, where it came from photos, that kind of thing. And, and it's, you know, usually somewhere within that process, I can figure out yeah. where the injury came from, why, and what we're dealing with. And if yeah, when you dig into it like that, what we call that is triggers. So we, it's developing a trigger management plan. Uh, the, the idea is that you're trying to get them to be able to bike, run and swim as much as you can get the best training effect you can, and then eliminate the stuff, the triggers that may be making it. So those symptoms are coming on. Like, so it's almost like the, the triggers, the dancing all night in high heels is like, uh, is setting them up to not, not tolerate swimming, biking or running the next day. Right. Right. Yeah. And even like, I'll ask them, like someone will randomly change their running shoe and they won't, they won't tell me. And I'll be, I'll first thing I'll ask them is, is the drop different on the shoe? Mm -hmm. you know, they won't even think of that. They'll just, Oh, I just went and got these new cool new shoes. And it's like, Oh, well the drop, that was a four millimeter drop. And that one was an eight millimeter drop. And you just suddenly change that in the yeah. middle of a really high load, high stress training block. Your body can't handle that kind That's of a new experience when, when you've already, when you're like already fatigued and you've done that many reps in and then they're, oh, they're all of a sudden jump on the road bike one day when they've been doing nothing but being on their TT bike and then an injury pops up. So it's, it's usually just, uh, you need to, when you're doing it remotely, you need sort of this pool of questions that you keep digging for where it came from. Yeah. And that's been, that's been pretty, honestly, it's, there isn't too many cases where I can't figure out where the injury came from in that case or what the injury actually is. And, and getting to a point like, okay, well now what is our plan to, to what PT or do we need to go to a doctor? Yep. Like first and foremost, figure out what it is, figure out where it came from. And then who's our professionals on board to make it, to get rid yeah, of it. Like what's your team? Well, to me, so to me, the, the most interesting part about triathlon and triathlon related injuries is the interaction between the, the swimming, biking and running. So if you take out everything else, like what you're talking about, these things that um, almost extrinsic factors that are causing this person to have the, the, uh, the issue, then you're, you're, if you get left with it's, it's actually the training regimen or, or the swimming interacting with running or running, interacting with biking, that's driving the injury. That's a, that's a different case. But I mean, you know, if you're, if you can figure out that there's something else that's underlying it, like you're, you're, you're tolerating the training well until you start to sit more it's like, boom, now you have a, you have a really clear pathway. You don't have to change anything in your, in your training plan. Um, yeah. What's funny is with our, with our process and when we get people that come in, it's often nothing's helped. So like you make those adjustments and they're still having pretty severe symptoms. Um, so that's when we go through our diagnostic process, it's actually really similar to what you guys were just talking about. Um, the big difference is obviously we throw in an exam to, to confirm it. So the location part that you're talking about, so somebody feels it in their foot and it's, it's really clear. They can point to it. If it's in their hand, that's, that's great, right? Like they, they can, they can point to where it's coming from. We, we actually can be pretty certain that the structure is really close to where they're feeling it, but if they're feeling it anywhere north of the knee, you know, north of the elbow. So if it's more proximal is the way that we, we describe it in medical, in the medical field, uh, shoulder, trunk, uh, neck, low back, you can't always trust where they're feeling it. So we call it a referral. Um, so if you're having a referral pain, that's, that's where the diagnostic process can get a lot more tricky, but you know, post-hib Achilles tendon, calf cramping, hip pain on the bottom of your foot, that one, you can be really pretty certain that you have the right diagnosis. And then the treatment regimen is we're my personal bias. And I'm an extremely, I don't know if you, I am an extremely biased person. So like if, 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 if I see that it's, it's going to be, um, my bias is to be extremely aggressive. I actually don't like to reduce activity 
at all at this point, especially when you're coming into like, you're, you're about to be there. All you have to do is get the person to, to get past this, this basically peak training period. Um, cause then if I, if we can make that person last a week to two weeks, they're good to go. And they'll be and the, you know, they can actually get the, the full benefit of your training plan. Um, if I had actually say that's the number one mistake I feel like I see when I'm talking with coaches after they've, if they've sent an athlete over is, um, instead of getting, getting the person, as soon as it starts to creep up, instead of them getting analyzed quickly, they let it linger to where now it's like game time and that person's totally crushed and there's no way they're going to get the training effect they want. So I think that's probably the biggest mistake I see. Yeah. I actually had a, a recent athlete. She, she had a crash uh, and she had some pain within three or four days later. And I said, get an MRI right away. There's no point in messing around because at least if we know what we're working with, then we have a plan in place right away. I, I'm the same as you. I don't like to mess around. It's like, let's, let's find out. We know what caused, this was very clear. She crashed. So we knew where, what caused it. Then there it's like, we need to find out what it is like the exact, cause we're not going to mess around with weeks and weeks of guessing treatment and then end up in the same place. We need to know exactly what it is. And then once we knew what exactly what it was, then the next question, the next step was what can we still do? And when we knew what we could still do, then we designed a program that she could continue to heal, but her fitness was going to still continue to improve. And this was actually even um, like we included things that, so for her, it was a fracture and, you know, we knew some coaches might say we have to like completely just, you know, just swim or completely just bike or water run. And I, I, as long as once the acute healing part was, was settled enough and we got even just a little bit of a green light, it was a swim bike. And then we started walking right away. And then, and as it healed and we hit these markers, it was okay. It was like, okay, well now we can walk uphill and now we can, you know, hike, we can do stairs. Like, so it's still weight bearing as it was healing. And she's hasn't lost any fitness whatsoever. In fact, it was probably like a good little reset and she'll roll right into her and her, her you know, we focused on the bike and the swim and, and there was like literally nothing lost. If anything, something's gained in certain ways. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I, I would actually say the biggest thing is, all right, did you tell her not to crash again? Yeah. yeah <laughs> like that's, uh, that's, like, that's typically the first thing we tell them is like, don't try not to crash. Like that's, uh, yeah. that's yeah. a good one. No, that's, I mean, yeah, I, th I do think that there, as long as you're intelligent about your progressions, I, I think being, being like movement forward, like really, really allowing the person to kind of push it and give them really good parameters to continue loading. Uh, I see the best results with that. Um, the only, and I definitely made this mistake is where, um, is if it's too severe or if the athlete doesn't actually tell you honestly what they're experiencing, which, which can also happen because the goal is pretty big. If they've been working on this for six months and now they're, they're seeing it's not going to happen. Um, so having like a, a good way to assess if they're telling you the truth, that's always super helpful. And it, it's not even, I don't even know if they're doing to saying it on purpose, not telling you what, what they're actually experiencing. Um, it's uh, you, you don't want that person not to be able to actually reach their goal, being able to do the, the triathlon, but yeah. The other question I always ask myself when I'm like trying to come up with, okay, once we know what the injury is, how we're treating it and what can we do is make sure that we don't do anything that's going to permanently hurt them. And so it's like, I don't know where you guys are with this or, or, you know, but, um, if the, if, if it's like, as far as coaches and, and therapists pushing athletes and the athlete themselves pushing them through one particular event, like we're looking at world championships, we've got this injury, we've got this plan in place, we're going to get there, we're going to get do it. And Jesse, you were talking about this before, 
we started recording, like, Hey, if I go do this, am I going to be broken forever? So it's like, we might get through this event, but then my next question would be, if we do this, what happens after the race? Um, because, you know, right now in the current conversation, we're talking about this one particular event that we want to get to, but then once that's done, we still want to be a developing athlete and an, possibly an athlete your whole life and continuing to get better. So if the answer is, yes, this is all going to be great. And we're going to get through this event successfully. And we've set our expectations for this event correctly. But then like, where is, where are you at? Like, do you have specific things that you have as markers? Like, yes, because you literally did this with Jesse for China. So it's like, yes, you're going to be okay to go to this event. And you're, this is what you're going to be dealing with but you're going to be okay afterwards. Or like, no, this is my hard stop line. We don't push through this because you'll be wrecked forever. Yeah. I mean, you always have what we call red flags, right? Things that, things that tell you, you can't move past it. You have to be intelligent with how you, uh, how you set up the plan of care for this patient. So when they come in and the, the time that they actually go through the exam, the way our team operates is we do what's called a three level prognosis. And one of the reasons we, we do that instead of just saying come in twice a week for six weeks is allows the, the client to, to hold us accountable for what they're actually experiencing. And then we can set up worst case scenarios. So we best case scenario. If you stop doing the triathlon right now and we shut everything down, you could be pain-free in a week, right? Like that's, that's not your decision. Worst case scenario. If you're going to keep training, I can help you manage it. Um, and we'll, and it, so we can do that the first day. Like we can just say, okay, I'm going to go see, let's go see you run. And let's see if I can get, we can get it actually to be completely pain-free. Uh, and if we can't that, then it's like, okay, worst case scenario, it may take six months. So you may be able to shut it down, get better uh, in that short time period. But if you get back to running two weeks later, it's not a guarantee that you're actually going to be completely pain-free. Right. So I think the biggest thing is just to actually set up uh, the, the outline of, what to expect. So if, if you're going to continue to train, there's not a ton of, there's not a lot of things that I get nervous about, uh, for long-term issues. So there, I mean, there's some, there's some, definitely some ones like somebody's coming in and I've seen them have a stress fracture before, or they keep on having recurring stress fractures. Now, if we, if we see that over two times, it's, it's an automatic dietitian referral. So yeah. we, we think it's nutritional. I, that was a huge change. Um, when we brought on our dietitian, and, it, and it's, it's helped our long-term outcomes dramatically. So that's one where if you're showing another stress fracture, you've shown it in multiple places, it's, it's probably beyond a biomechanical issue. You have something else that's, that's driving it, whether it's not fueling enough. You guys have to see that all the time, right? Where people miss, like they, they don't make the switch in their mind between being an athlete and trying to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're not, they're not actually eating enough and not getting enough calories in. So they have these stress fractures and that's actually not ours. That's not our thing to help as a physical therapist. That's, that's where we, we work with the, uh, the sports nutritionist. Um, other ones would be, if you start to show one that's common, uh, that we've seen is having an acute disc. So you guys know what I, what I mean when I say that. So like in your lumbar spine or in your whole spine, you have these, uh, you have a vertebra and then in between each vertebra, you have discs and those discs can, um, can have different types of injuries. You can have what's called an internal disc disruption, prolapse, protrusion, or extrusion. And depending on what type of injury you have, you can actually hurt the nerve root that's coming out of your spine. And we do tests called dermatomes and myotomes that will tell us if a specific nerve root's affected. 
And you can actually test that and see if we need to shut it down or if it's like you have to have surgery or we need to get an epidural uh, or if we just need to manage it. So those types of things, like we, we catch like neuro, neuro signs, that would be another one. Um, but when it comes to like tendon injuries, uh, when it comes to even some joint related injuries, we can actually manage almost all of those without having to completely stop. And it's, it's actually really fun because you can, uh, you can set up a plan and you can start to adjust the training plan with the coach so that they can train the athlete, but also build in your home plan, our physical therapy home plan to, uh, to make the training plan actually work. So that, that's to me is, is like the most fun part. But if you, if you're not showing any of those signs, I, I just don't get nervous. I, I, it's not one of those. If you're, if you're not showing something that shows me you're high risk, I'm not nervous about it. Not getting better. Yeah. At all. So let's just go back to the, the thing you are nervous about, right? So if someone has low back pain, like how, mm -hmm. how is there like a way to say, okay, like I've got this low back pain. It happens on the bike. I feel it on the run. It, it's a little bit worse in the morning. Like, I, I don't know, like, is there any red flags there that will lead you to say, Hey, you need to come in. Cause I want to make sure this isn't like crazy serious or like do a couple of deadlifts and you'll probably be better. Yeah. Yeah. Just do lift as much load as possible right after you're off the bike and we'll see what explodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know what I mean though, right? Yeah, I, I do. I, yeah. yeah. The okay. back doesn't hurt anymore because my hamstring. Exploded. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know why okay. I can't feel my legs anymore. Everything's better. So yeah, yeah. I, you know, that's a great question. I, so to me, if you're in the middle of this training plan, it's, it's finding a good physical therapist can be a really good partner. And so that's the, the I think the biggest thing is, is not being afraid to go in earlier than you feel like you need to. And, and if you're, if you're working with the right PT, or if you're working with the right professional, it doesn't have to be a PT. If you're working with the right professional, they won't shut you down. They'll give you the tools to stay active. And so it's not something you need to be afraid of. You don't want to hide an in injury until it's, it's now debilitating and affecting your ability to push through. So the mistake would, would be to me, if you're starting to have a little bit of low back symptoms, if you can't reduce it yourself right there, then you need some level of help. So for in that example, you get off the bike. One of the easiest things to do is to develop a recovery routine after you get off the bike, right? So you get off the bike, you do light level attraction, or you, you get into a recovery position, or you develop a core activation series, or during your bike, you, you may practice sometime in the, the TT bike. You may practice sometime on the road bike, right? So having some level of a plan so that your symptoms are actually improving. And if you're able to actually make your back start to feel better during the course of training, you don't need to shut it down. And that's a, that's a significant difference versus letting it get so bad that now you have to have help. Now it's affected your training plan. So it's, it's getting after it sooner. In my opinion, that's, that's fantastic for my bottom line as a PT, but uh, <laughs> it is actually pretty effective. So uh, that's uh yeah. So obviously schedule a visit as soon as possible at smithperformancecenter.com. <laughs> but, but also maybe not though, right? Cause if, if you catch them early, you get them out of there in one session and give them some tools as opposed to if you catch it late and then you have to see them 10 times in a row. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, to be honest that the, our whole, when we started this company, the, the idea for me is we want to be the best therapist. We didn't want to feel like there was a close selection to like number two it's just, it's a goal. I'm not saying that there's, there's fantastic physical therapists all around, but the way that we want to operate is we want people to get better as fast as possible. So they don't actually have to come back in. Cause I, the nice part is when you're physically active, you hurt yourself 
And so we, we want to be the place that you come back to after you hurt yourself like the third, fourth and fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time so that you keep on coming back to us. So it's, if you're, if you're working with the right person, they're not going to keep you and they're not going to prevent you from being active. Uh, but the other, the other big one, just kind of on that point is developing training aids. So another one, like if somebody has that back pain, uh, you know, and back pain is not the best one, but if somebody has hip pain, for example, and they have it during the run, having somebody use a surf strap to confirm that you're, you guys know what a surf strap is? Explain it to our listeners. Yeah. So a surf strap is a, is a brace that is, it's the most, I, I always call it it's the most difficult to use brace. It's an extremely long strap. It starts at your knee, wraps around your leg and tensions around your pelvis. Uh, one of my rotations, I worked with a biomechanist and he actually developed this brace. And what it does is it, it replicates what your glute medius does during the gait cycle. So your glute medius is a keystone muscle during the gait cycle. So the difference between running and walking is running. You have, depending on who, what researcher and who, who you ascribe to running has a flight period, which walking doesn't. And then the other key characteristic is walking. You're at your highest at mid stance running. You're at your lowest at mid stance mid stance is where you're going to have the most problems. So if I'm watching somebody run, that's where you're and we're doing like posterior view. What you'll see if the glute medius isn't active is what's called a pelvic tilt. Some level of that is completely normal. If we don't see any, that's actually not good either. But if you, if, it, if you don't, if you see a ton and 10 degrees or more, uh, so if it's actually visible, you're the, the person's not controlling or not using their glute medius effectively, you put on a surf strap and that basically goes away. So we can look also at hip adduction, adduction angle. So at the, the femur dives in, we can look at how much knee valgus the person has. We can look at knee contact angle. We can look at forefoot abduction. All of those things can actually be caused by a poor functioning glute medius, which can either be weakness or it can be inhibition, which is another huge difference. Do you guys know what I'm talking about with that? Oh yeah. 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 So yeah, the, okay. go ahead. I was going to ask you if you could kind of go, go through an overview of what that might be. Cause I, I would imagine most of our listeners follow more of the inhibition category. I mean, sure there's some weaknesses, but yeah. So I think another big mistake is that people will try to take physical therapy exercises and turn them into a workout uh, or they'll take what I call activation exercises. And they think that they need to be doing those every day. Activation exercises, you can think of them more as a warm up, or they need to be inserted into points where your muscle needs to be reactivated. So one of, uh, one of the studies that not study, but one of the ways that we test this, we have a, we call it an inhibition protocol, where if you, if you think about how a muscle fires, right. So we can test a muscle and at its maximal contraction. So you have them get on the side if we're talking about the glute med, and we take what's called a hand dynamometer and we push down and they push up and we see how much force is uh, actually produced. So that's their hundred percent maximal contraction during the gait cycle. There's a percentage of that that's used while they run, right? If you go certain, certain, if you start to test that and you see that there's a drop off, like a dramatic drop off, and now they have pain. So say I have them run for a mile. They start to feel like they're, they're feeling weird. You can have like a 50 to 80% drop off in their ability to actually fire the muscle that has nothing to do with fatigue. If you're somebody who can, who can run for 26 miles, but all of a sudden a key muscle is now unable to fire whatsoever. That's not weakness. So, and if you, and if you get it prior to pain, that's also not caused by just it hurting, right? Cause pain in itself can be inhibitory, make the muscle not fire well. So 
that's an inhibition process. And so if we, if we catch that, that can, that, that's actually tells us when our intervention needs to happen. So that's when you need to be doing your sidestep exercises that you got from your PT doing it beforehand. That may prolong how long that happens, but if you were starting to have pain at mile three, the exercises at the beginning of the workout aren't sufficient. You have to, you have to fire that muscle right when you start to experience that reduction, or you can use a surf strap, uh, which, like I said, you, it takes a little bit to get that, to be able to figure out how to put that on. Um, and it, it, it will actually really help you basically power through that. Then you don't have to worry about activating it. Just that takes care of it. The big difference though, is if you use a brace, it doesn't correct the problem, it, right? It just, it's a training aid. It makes it so you can get through it, but it doesn't actually make it so that you're, you're now your glute doesn't inhibit. It just makes it so you're, it doesn't matter if you, if your glute fires or not, the brace is going to do it for you. Can so, you also, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, can you, we were talking a little bit before about, I think a nice transition from this is also the relationship between like you're, we're talking about, okay, this injury is popping up on the run, but it could be from swimming or, yeah. you know, you're feeling this on, on the swim, but it happened from the bike or, you know, we're, we're having a great conversation. About yeah. That yeah. Earlier. The interaction. So, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think this sort of goes hand in hand as well. Okay. It's like, when is it, does that activation stuff might be, well, I only ever have the pain on the run. So I only do it on the run. Or is this actually happening when I'm on the bike and I need to be doing it then as well? Or, you know, yeah. Total side note. Did I tell you guys, I started swimming. Recently? Oh, oh, dang. oh no, my gosh. Alert that is so brutal. So brutal. <laughs> Just getting like the 25 yards was so awful the first time. <laughs> trying to breathe out underwater. I still use the nose plug, yeah. um, which is kind of embarrassing. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, st- so, so definitely embarrassing. We need, oh my God. It's so, <laughs> so embarrassing. I've got the flip turned down now. I can do like the hundred pretty easy. Nice. Um, I still have the nose plug. Nice. <laughs> I think I've gotten like just smacked in the nose too many times. So it's like the, I can't, I don't, I don't function well with it. Total mouth breather. Like, like all, all the times, like it doesn't, doesn't feel better anyway. So with, with uh, triathlon, I, I think the thing that's most interesting about triathlon for me, if, especially if you're more interested in how people hurt themselves doing triathlon, which is definitely my thought process, um, is how the, the different components of it, the different disciplines actually cause different types of injuries. And you see in the things by themselves. So, uh, it's actually really cool. Like the, uh, when I first started working with triathletes, the most common thing I heard is it's, it, it reduces your injury risk because you're, you're not doing one thing over and over again. So hypothetically, if, if running related injuries are more common because you run more, if you spice, if you mix in, uh, running with, uh, with biking and swimming, it's no longer as big of an issue. And it doesn't, to me, that's not what happens at all. The, the injury rates fairly similar, um, if not somewhat higher for different, different types of the pathologies. Um, and so, you know, these, these different injury profiles. So it's like, if somebody comes up with an Achilles tendinopathy and they're just a runner, I don't think of it at the same way as if somebody comes in and they're a triathlete with an Achilles tendon injury, I know that we have to manage the swimming component. So, so for example, if you, if you keep <coughs> like the foot pointed down, you, you can easily induce cramps. Like who have you got, you guys get cramping when you swim at all in your feet yeah. or in your, your, calf? Oh, it's super common. And then the most common thing is you hear is people do a long run on Sunday morning and they get in the pool on Sunday afternoon. They're like, Oh, I had calf cramps the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, that happens. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, that. it's, it's kind of like that. That's the, 
those are really, because the way that you would now go after that is drastically different than if somebody came into me with an Achilles tendinopathy with just running versus an Achilles tendinopathy with swimming or with the triathlon, I'm sorry, because you have to hit both of them, even, even somewhat with biking. So, um, that type of interaction part, it's, it happens in each discipline. So like you're, if you're talking about biking and you have anterior hip pain, uh, you think about the interaction between the, the run and the, and the bike. So that, that part of it is, I think is so fascinating as, as you guys, as coaches, I you probably are aware of it, but if you, if you have somebody doing like bricks where they get, they practice getting off the bike and getting and getting into the run, uh, one of the, one of the, my favorite fixes for hip pain during the run is to have somebody get out of the saddle, like a mile to two miles out of, out of the transition. So that they're, they're getting up, they're squeezing their butt as hard as they can. And oftentimes that'll actually take out if somebody has, has anterior hip pain, uh, in the first five miles of the run. So like that type of stuff, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's really a cool way that you can actually, um, knock out injuries that you think might be worse than what they are. But TFL injuries are really common. So the tensor fascia lata, it's a hip abductor. It's very active in the running gait cycle. Uh, and when you guys are on your TT bikes and especially that aggressive position, you know, everybody's like really forward lean, you guys just, it's just, you're just crushing the tendons and the, and, you know, in the front of the hip over and over and over again. Uh, those are, I, I think those are such a, like, they're such a fun injury to treat because it can look like it's magic. If you, if you, if you apply the right intervention at the right time during the training cycle. It is. I mean, you're cramped up like that. You're totally right. And then you ask yourself to stand up and go to a completely different eccentric load, big, long gate type yeah. sport. It's like, it doesn't yeah. any wonder your body's like, Oh God. No, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. No, that, it, that, that part's like really, really, really fun though. It's, uh, um, yeah, I mean, is that what, cause you guys, when you guys are mixing it in, you don't have them, do you have them on the, on the TT bike, the whole, the whole training cycle? If someone's training for a, a, an A race, yeah, I say, I mean, the big thing that I find, especially with older athletes is any changes at all, uh, it's, it can cause pretty big problems. And so if someone's in within like, depends on their age and how hard they're training eight to 12 weeks of an A race, I, you know, in their off season, go ahead, mix up the bikes, gravel bikes, road bikes, all of that kind of stuff. But if we're in an eight week, 12 week focus block to a race, I say, please just stay on one bike because even just slight change in, you know, whether they're slightly more open in their hip or the cranks a little bit different length or their positions completely different, that kind of thing. It's, I find small changes for any, any, well, any athletes, but let's say athletes over the age of 38, those injuries pop up really, really fast. Now other yeah. coaches might say, well, you got to keep that variety in order for them to be injury preventive. I'm like, yeah, do that in the off season. Like I was saying to you earlier, we, I used to train horses and in the off season, we took their shoes off. We did all kinds of different stuff with them, strengthen up their feet, tendons, ligaments, all these different exercises. When it was competition season, fully loaded up on the proper shoes. And that's what they went in because the load was already so high and, and you're focused on something that if you change even just the slightest thing, we're doing millions of repetition under high fatigue and high stress. And if you change just a millimeter of something within three weeks, usually somebody's injured. Yeah. So you're I'm thinking like, of it, you're thinking of it as like, you're training the connective tissues, soft tissue stuff to, to be able to tolerate the stresses. Mm -hmm. So and if, if you're starting to have a breakdown at that point, it's, it's kind of, it's too late. You're thinking more of the off season to train it. 
Yeah. Off season, off season, go ahead and train like different drop shoes, different bikes, uh, all the different things that you're wanting to, to, to experiment with or strengthen and all that stuff, do that in the off season, but in the in season, because you're, you're already so highly fatigued and you're, you're doing really high stress, repetitive forward movement, basically, whether you're swimming or biking and running and everything's mm-hmm. under a large amount of fatigue already. So if then you go in there and throw like what I call like a curveball, like, oh, I suddenly jumped on my road bike, or I suddenly tried these new shoes. Usually uh, I'm like, let's do that when you're fresher and we're not already under a massive amount of load and tired uh, and just focus on staying on the one bike. I mean, your yeah. question was specifically stay on a TT bike. I'm like, when you're within a race block, stress is high enough. Don't, don't swap around bikes as well. Yeah. So you're really reducing the variance of like the, the train, like the training parameters. Yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah, I take a slightly different approach on that. Um, but I, I like to have my athletes, if they do have a road bike and they ride it consistently, I like to keep them mixing it in once a week, but I feel like if they're doing that, then it's never quite that curveball. where I see the issues are if they, if they don't ride it for a really long time and then they go back to it. But if we're like, okay, like, let's say every Sunday is easy spin day and you go out and you ride your road bike, like at least once a week. So it is like still kind of constant. Um, as I feel like for some, some, especially males, if they're on the, their TT bike, they only know one speed. And so to kind of say, okay, like we're going to ride crush chill it. today. Yeah, like, yeah. You do not need to crush everyone's soul on the river path every day. So we can ride the road bike. We can sit up nice and high. And that, that kind of allows some people to ride a little bit, a little bit easier. Um, and, and I kind of feel the same way about shoes or I'm like, I like to cycle through the shoes, but I like to make sure it's like, these are all like, you've worn some fast shoes in the off season. You're not just throwing on the fast shoes for the first time. And you're going to try and do a bunch of workouts in them right during race season. So I, I, I totally agree with like containing the variables, but I just like to keep some of the variables constant all year. Yeah. I honestly, I, like I really them. like to, you know, on that point though, of like getting people different skill sets, right? So you're, you're training somebody on a TT bike, which is different than somebody on a road bike, right? Yeah. Like it's not the same. I think I told you guys, I don't ride bikes at all. <laughs> so it's just more just like watching people hurt themselves over and over again. You, I just, you just start to develop opinions. Uh, but that's that, that like that kind of skill set. I think that part's really interesting is like where you're, you're developed, you have to have time to actually develop the skill to actually perform, to perform at a high level. Right. Yeah. Um, I do think there's huge value in being able to throw different variations in and be able to do it competently. That's with running, for example, one of the big ones is to be able to get people to do a heel strike, not just a midfoot strike, not just a forefoot strike. Uh, I think often people, they conflate heel striking with overstriding and it's not the same thing. Like they talk about having like a breaking impulse with a heel strike and that's just not actually, that's not accurate. You get a breaking, you get a breaking impulse if you overstride and you land with your knee uh, less than 15 degrees, which is extremely common. And it's harder to do that if you have a forfeit strike, but you're, you can take advantage of what's called a, a rocker. So you guys have, you guys have heard of rockers with gate, the gate cycle, like mm-hmm. with the foot. So you have four functional rockers. So you have your heel rocker, ankle rocker, forefoot rocker, and toe rocker. And those are all things that allow our body to have forward propulsion without having like a stop. Right. And so many people have, have read that you have to be able to, you have to be doing a four foot strike. Cause that's like the fastest way to go. Right. Uh, that is the most, if somebody comes in and they have a four foot strike, they're swimming. And this is like the first triathlon. That is the most difficult case to work with because they, they, their calf just gets destroyed 
their Achilles gets destroyed and it's, it's so difficult. And if you guys work on it, like in the off season, that they can get the heel strike. I've had multiple times where people are, you know, halfway through a marathon. And it's one that they really want to perform with and they get calf cramps. And if they hadn't developed the ability to switch to a heel strike and feel confident with it, they wouldn't have finished the race. And so stuff like that, like that's, that's, that's for me is like the only advantage. If you're talking about putting time in, that's the only way you get good at something is if you actually do the activity. And I totally get that. For, for me, like being able to give people more tools, like to be able to basically push through during the actual races, it's pretty valuable. But like, I can see how it's not valuable if they, uh, it's a really short window for sure. So let's talk about like, I guess some more specific things. Like let's say someone is, is having um, some of that calf stuff, like their calf yeah. is, is flaring up. Yep. And let, or let's, I mean, maybe can we run through a few of like the major muscle groups in, in the legs since we're talking about triathlon that, yeah. I mean, so me, I actually, I don't remember if this is a talk before we started, we really had a long talk beforehand <laughs> and now I'm like starting to forget like what things we were talking about before it. I, so the most, for me, the most common injury, if I start at the, the head and start to work down, uh, neck pain, uh, shoulder pain, wrist, um, low back pain, I guess we do get some thoracic low back. I think I'm literally listing everything in the body, hip, <laughs> knee, foot and ankle. Right. So if, if, if I had to say the ones that I see the most common, it's going to be number one is hip. Somebody comes in, they have pain in the front of their hip. Second one would be uh, Achilles tendon calf. Third one would be uh, heel pain. Uh, fourth would then be shoulder followed probably closely by neck. And actually low back is probably right up there in the top three as well. Uh, so if, if somebody comes in and if, if any one of those areas, the pathology that I'm most concerned about that I feel like I've had a hard time people getting in front of would be the hip with pain in the abdominals. I think that is the most of all of almost all the cases. If somebody comes in, they're like, ah, it hurts. It hurts in my stomach when I, uh, cough or sneeze. Uh, every time I take a step, it hurts in my groin area. Uh, that is, that is such a fun treatment regimen. Uh, it is, I am so much more aggressive on that now than I used to be. Uh, it is, I find it to be the most difficult one to keep somebody trained. I actually have, I actually currently have it, an athlete with that exact injury. Um, what is like, if you were just going to give like, cause I'll, I'll do a shout to out. Treat like, it. Hey, listen, listen to this. Yeah. Um, he doesn't live here, but if there, if there was like a, the top three lists that you said, Hey, focus boom, on boom, boom. And, Yeah. Because he's, and yeah. he's, and it is, I mean, it's been lingering around. We've been doing all kinds of like psoas releasing. I have him do a little activation routine, um, trying to get him before every single run. Yes. You know, we've looked at bike fit. We've been doing everything with hip openers, that kind of stuff. So, so I've actually been obsessed with this injury because it's, okay. it's one of, I, when, when we have ones that don't come the way I want them to, if, they, if I overshoot. So when we set up our plan of care, like I was talking about best case, worst case, and what actually happens when, if we're off on that, our entire team basically just digs into it. So we do case reviews every week um, as a, as a, as a group. So we have, we review cases, especially ones that aren't, aren't going well. This one is such a difficult rehab if you don't understand what actual structures are involved. So the first thing is that you said, you so has 10 release. Normally we think this is actually your adductor longus. So there's a, the largest cross-sectional areas can be your adductor longus on the, on the, in the inner thigh. When you get into uh, testing this, the positions that you're in on the bike, it's almost impossible not to uh, compress the adductor longus at not, uh, less than 90 degrees. So if they're sitting and they feel it or even not feeling it, you're probably still compressing and irritating it. So at first it's the first thing is 
is it your adage longest? And so the way that you find out if it is, you have the person lying on their back, their hips are about 45 degrees, and then have like a ball in between their knees and have them squeeze the ball. The muscle that contracts right there, if you feel your inner thigh, you don't want to do this in public. Because this, this is a pretty invasive. I mean, you're going right up to your pelvis. So if you palpate that, that's probably what's going to be super tender is that inner thigh muscle. Your psoas tendon, you can really only feel, I know some people say you can feel it in the abdominals. I don't, I don't feel like you can. I think the only place you can really feel that is right off your sartorius over your, um, over your, in, into your thigh. Uh, it's most likely after longest. And so if you follow that all the way up, that tendon actually attaches to your pubis and then your rectus abdominis abdominals actually connect down to your, your pubic symphony, your pubic area. And so if that adductor squeeze hurts and then they try to do like a trunk curl up as well, or like a sit up, and that also hurts, you're dealing with, uh, uh, basically a combined injury to this conjoined tendon where the adductor longus feeds into the rectus abdominis. So once that happens, uh, you have to find a way to make the activities that you do during, during triathlon, not painful. So the first step is foam rolling the adductor longus and doing that all the time, activating it in a way that's not painful. So you can start to load the tendon without it hurting. I uh, wear an adductor longus brace, which is one of my favorite ones, but you have to be careful with that because it, uh, it can cause skin irritation. So if, if you have it and you're starting to run and you have any level of like knee collapse or hip adduction during the, during your gait cycle, you're going to rip your thighs apart. Then, the, and then on the bike, most men, uh, if you don't have the adequate inter hip internal rotation, you're actively squeezing your knees in during, during the bike. And this is one that I missed. I wasn't aware enough of this just cause I, obviously I didn't, I don't do the sport. I just treat a lot of the athletes when they get hurt is that the, the bike, even if you don't feel it, if you're pulling your knees in, you're activating your adductor longus. And so people would actually hurt it during the bike and it can be pain-free. So it, the first treatment for me is to make it so that you don't have to stay in arrow, an arrow position. You allow the, you allow the knees to fall out. And if the cleats are set up in such a position that it's pulling, pulling them in or it limits their ability to relax their hips, they, uh, they may actually be activating it during the, during their biking and then provoking it during the run. And then the other one is, uh, I don't do kickboard sets anymore. So kickboard sets with, uh, the swimming is also another one that's like hugely provocative to the adductor longus, which I, I wouldn't have thought of that one either. So all of those ones, like I take out kickboard sets, you may swim only with a buoy between your, between your legs, if you can do it, but you have to change how you do it. Cause you can't have the, the lay, you can't have the, uh, the squeeze with the buoy, right? You have to have it so that the, the buoy is, is set in such a way that you don't feel like you're squeezing. So you actually have to strap the buoy around instead of having, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So th those are all training errors, right? So if you, if you, if you have any of those things, if you add in the, if you add in the, the, the buoy, you're doing a whole bunch of kick sets. If you have a arrow position that you're really trying to be aggressive with, you combine that with running when it's painful, all those interact with each other. And if you don't take out each one of those variables, it makes it so every time you go train, it makes it much worse. Right. So those are like the triggers. Those would be ones that you would eliminate right off the bat. Great. Thanks for that. That's really helpful. Yeah. Good conversation. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I had a lot of cyclists who say the first thing that goes is their adductor. Like when things start to cramp towards the end of like, even if it's just like a long day, like out there in the heat. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I, I do remember like back in the day when they actually told you to ride with your knees narrow for like aerodynamics, like 
did you ever hear that Marilyn? Like to try and keep your knees? No, pinching? but you know what? Because you've ridden with me a lot because my knees, like my, I, if you saw me ride, you'd probably cringe, Craig. My knees completely fall into the point where they almost touch the top tube, but I'm really duck footed. So like my knees fall in, but my feet poke out and pe- you've seen it, Jesse, right? I mean, you've ridden with me a lot. And, and so like, because that was a thing back then people would ride with me and they try and mimic that and I was like no 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 like I'm not doing that on purpose that's just how I'm built um so what's interesting though is you have to remember the architecture of the theme like so how the acetabulum right so how the acetabulum sits with the femoral head if you go into hip flexion just pure if you just go pure hip flexion the way that we think of it you're actually to your body you're you're producing hip interrotation so if you have any level of adduction at the same time you're internally rotating even more you just don't realize it's happening. An internal rotation basically compresses all the structures in the front. So you, you, you don't realize it, but there's a special test that we call uh, the circumduction test. You're basically doing a circumduction test on yourself. And what that is, is you're taking the femur during the circumduction test and you're crushing each of the tendons between bones, right? right. And then the person screams at you They're like, ah, that's it. And it's like, oh, that's okay. You're at it for the longest. That's great. That's what you're doing to yourself. You know, and is, you, uh... you don't even realize it, right? <laughs> What's that? This is the first time I really wish we were on YouTube. Like Craig, Craig's, <laughs> Craig's hand motions during this have been great, and no one's gone to see them except us. I apologize, yeah. to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I love. I mean, it's it's very enjoyable when you get the right diagnosis and the person's like, yeah, you know, they're not happy. I'm happy because I know what's going to happen now. I know how to treat it. But it's uh, when you when you see it, I mean that, and that's the most fun part with triathlon stuff though. Is like the training parts you can make if you can make small modifications. So in my mind, and I don't know how you guys think about it. I'm already thinking like if I was, if I was involved in that, that plan of care or with that training plan for your client is how do we make it so that he can have extra rotation as hips? So, right. Cause if he, if he goes into extra rotation, he's not going to be compressing those tendons. Right. So that's like, that's right off the bat. Um, how do we get it so that you can still have the swimming effect where he's doing the pulls, but he's not squeezing his, he's not using the additive longest, which unfortunately, when you think about hip flexors, Adderton longest is a weak hip flexor, but because of the cross-sectional area, it'll be super active. Um, how do we get rid of it? You know, and then if you're, if he's doing any level of like lifting or anything like that, he has to take it out. So anything where your rectus and abdominus is involved. And so when we think about core exercises, we think about them in, in the ways that the plant, like basically immobility, like preventing motion in your spine. So we have frontal, frontal plane. So it'd be like stuff like uh, suitcase carries, um, side planks. We think of transverse plane. So that'd be like a pallet press or anything anti-rotation and then sagittal plane, which that's what most people, most people work off with like front planks, right? You can't do those. Like those have to be completely eliminated. You can hit all the other types of core activate a core strengthening exercise. But if you do anything with sagittal plane control, especially if it's preventing lumbar extension, you're going to light them up. And, and so like those types of things, you have to, you have to get rid of all of that. And if you, if you still train everything else, it'll be successful. And it'll actually be able to train and see improvement in his symptoms at the same time. That's when you know you're hitting it like perfectly. Right. right. You know? Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do, do we want to dive into a, a couple more like major things that you see? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the hip. I mean, do you guys have any other ones that you're, you're, you're having within your clients or any so that you've seen before cool. that you'd yeah, want to so- dive into? Yeah, well, like I was saying to you before, um, probably, and in, in, I don't know if, Jesse, you experienced this as well, is a really, really more commonly, it seems more commonly that women are injured with high upper hamstring injuries in triathlon. And um, 
that I see that in probably 90% of female professional triathletes, some males as well, obviously, but I'm just saying like the, the glaringly like big difference between the men and the women that get that injury in triathlon is, is it's like, it's definitely notable. I've definitely noticed it. Is there, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so the way that we look at it with injury data, so th this is one of the things that got us out of doing, I mean, doing a lot of research around injury prediction modeling is, is that we were the way that we found um, our injury rates that we see in our group and our community does not match what we're what we see in published research. So I think the the injury rates that are currently being reported as like this is what per thousand exposures per ten thousand exposures is how many times you'll see a hamstring injury in female athletes. I think it's drastically underreported because most people won't go somewhere to actually get it diagnosed. So one of, the, one of the things at our place is we have what's called open clinic where we'll diagnose an injury if you're part of our community. So we, we diagnose it and then we have it on our records of like what people are having. By making access easy, we actually are finding, I think people have injuries way more often. It's just they self-regulate, self-manage. And the only times they actually come in are when they can't get in front of it, right? So with like what you're experiencing, I'm not sure if the data would say that that's different. Um, maybe that's because women just don't, you know, they don't need help. They don't complain as much as men do. Right, Jesse? Uh, that's accurate. That's, I mean, that's it, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I think that, that that part of it, I'm not, I can't say if the research actually supports that, but I, I definitely have seen, I've treated a lot of areas. And I, I think one of the, one of the components that, that drives that, like a hamstring injury, is an imbalance between the way that you fire your hip extensors. So I think it's very, very common for uh, the female athlete to develop uh, hamstring dominance issues where instead of using the glute to activate during like a loading response, they're also firing the hamstring. So if we're looking at running, hamstring is most active during swing phase. It's when it's slowing the muscle down. But if you also have the hamstring being overactive during loading response, which is when the glute max should be most involved, you're, you're, you're basically always hammering it. And then the other thing that I've seen is like the, where you have somebody go ride the bike and before they ride the bike, you test to see if, if, uh, resistance is painful, they go hop on the bike, they spin a little bit and they come off and it looks like their hamstring now cramps easy and it's painful. You have a, just a, a, a weird way that they're trying to use their hamstring on the bike. Like they're really pulling way too hard during their, their during their stroke, during their pedal stroke. Then you have them run and then at their, they're not using their glute max well enough that I think that's one of the biggest drivers right there. So, so if you have somebody who's doing that during, during both of them, those are both training errors. Those are both just errors in how they're producing their motion. Um, but the other one is, I think that a lot of times people don't actually have hamstring injuries. I think it's a back referral, but they treat them like as a hamstring injury and it's not confirmed. So, um, so the way that we, the first thing you have to do is you have to differentiate. If you can cause your pain by, you know, moving your back, it's not your hamstring. Uh, my favorite test, if somebody's not, if I'm not going to see them in the clinic, we were doing like a, uh, telehealth session is to do the, the shoe off test, which is actually a test, but I think it's kind of hilarious, but if they have pain, when they try to take their shoe off, you know, like you hook the back of your foot on the shoe and you pull to take it off. If that's when they get pain, that's, that, that is their hamstring. But yeah. when I had, when I had that hamstring injury, I yeah. could not take my shoe off. 
Yeah. It was like, you wore the no. same shoes. And you're like, I, I, I was like, shoes I'm going to bend down legs. and just gently pull this off. Cause any, yeah, I was like, no, I know uh, I, when you say that, I know specifically that pain. Yeah. And I remember like how it was acute it was. So I uh, really know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. So you wore shoes. You're like 12 weeks I later. You're like, I can finally do it. Just shower. I can take, shoes. <laughs> this is it. I can take was, this shoe off. You were, you were saying actually, before we were recording about how to tell the difference between that. So the shoe off injury, if it is the hamstring, but like, if it's, if it's different than that, you explained a really good, good one as well. Well, so it, to me, so a lot of times people will say they have tightness. I think it was what we were talking about. And the number one training error that we see in our gym or with, with our athletes, we don't allow hamstring stretching. And I know that sounds kind of wild, but oftentimes what you think you're stretching is actually what's called a neural tension sign. So when people come in, they'll, they'll be like, you know, I feel super tight and my hamstrings are really tight. That feeling can happen from a low back injury, most often a disc injury. And, and when we think of like disc injuries, we really think of them oftentimes are the ones where they herniate and they shut off, like they basically compress a nerve and somebody has to have a micro but more often it's, it's not, it's like, it's like a ligament injury. So really your disc is just a specialized ligament. The outer portion we call the annulus fibrosis, the inner portion is called your nucleus pulposus. And if the nucleus pulposus pushes through the annulus fibrosis, that's when you have like a herniation, right? We have different levels of those. You have internal disc disruption, protrusion, prolapse, extrusion. Um, and so when people come in, if they may not realize that you can have a disc injury with with uh, what's called a somatic referral that goes right to where that hamstring is. And it can feel like it's your hamstring, but it's absolutely not. The hamstring resistant test is negative, but if you try to touch your toes, it'll feel like you're stretching your hamstring and it's not the hamstring, it's the back. And, and so, and, and you also made a really like specific point about a head movement that changed. Oh yeah. So, so the, the term is, I think is neary, but if you flex your head, if you move your head and you can, and you're like in a forward position and it intensifies the stretch, it's not your hamstring, right? That's your nervous system that you're stretching. That's, that's the only part that's continuous from there. It's not a muscle, right? The other way that we can do it is if you take and you pull the foot down, that'll also intensify the stretch. So there's two separate tests, one called the straight leg raise test. Also, I think it's called the Legge's test. And then I'm, I'm having like a, I don't know if my brain just kind of shut off right there. The other one's a slump test. So, so you can really wind it up and it's very clear. Like if you can provoke it by putting this like really intense neural tension to sign on, it's not the hamstring. And so you have people who come in for years who've been stretching this stuff. And the only treatment that we do is you just quit stretching and symptoms get better. Uh, that's where we like, we wish it was more difficult because we don't get any visits for it, but you know, yeah, <laughs> not good for the bottom line, but it's, 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 it's super common. So like that's that, those, those two things just right there, it, it can separate what the treatment plan is, which is actually really cool. Yeah. That, but the, the other one, the other one, just real quick that I think is uh, really interesting is uh, people, the plantar heel pain part is, is one of my, like my, the ones I really like to treat. Cause uh, somebody will come in and they'll tell me I've had plantar fasciitis. I have, it's always plantar fasciitis never gets better. If they tell me they have any cramping on the bottom of the other foot, I don't think it's plantar fasciitis. And if you're physically fit, you know, and you're healthy, I don't almost never see it as plantar fasciitis. So plantar fascia gets mostly tension during the, during terminal stance and, and a pre-swing. So it, that's when it, it, the most load goes through the plantar fascia. It's actually really, it's a stiff inert structure, right? You're not, you're, you're not actively firing your plantar fascia. It's, it's responsible for what's called the windless mechanism. And so when, if you take and you pull your toe up, that's, that's your plantar fascia that's, that's lifting your arch, right? 
So when people tell me that they get, if they get primary to most of their pain, when they're, when all their body weights on, on the ground, that's like a form of, a, of that's, that's loading the flexor digitorum brevis in your abductor halysis. And that is probably the number one, if not, if hamstring injury was one of the most common, like mistakes to stretch it, that's the one that's, if you learn anything, don't fire that muscle more. So like, that's funny because a lot of times people will come in and they're like, the treatment I got was to grip a towel and like fire the muscles on the bottom of my foot to strengthen the muscle. That is the worst way to treat this. Cause you're actually causing it to do what it's hurting it more which may, which makes zero sense. So, um, if you can, if you have that, if you have cramping on the bottom of your foot, that's not the plantar fascia, that's a muscle. And so if you it just even soft, gentle, soft tissue, we also do what's called a modified lodi on the bottom of that. Um, one of the ways that we tape it was actually specific to how our, our company does it. We did some work with, uh, uh Dr. Cornwall and we found if we use Luco tape, uh, and we, we developed this because of triathletes and having to swim, we can keep that tape on there for seven days and it, and it still provides a, uh, an effect, which is really cool. So if you need to unload like the planner intrinsics, it works, it works beautifully. And it's, it's one of the most effective ways for us to treat the, any post-hip injury, um, peroneus longus injury, flexor joint brevis, abductor halysis, any of those types of problems. We, we basically will tape it until, until it goes away. And you can still load it. So you can still exercise and all that stuff, which is probably all your people care about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, when I was years ago, when I was running a lot, I had chronic post-tib tendonitis and this was before any of, I got any of this fancy information. I didn't, I didn't really make enough money to have access to people <laughs> like you, but my gut instinct told me I would put a piece of tape just like on the, like outside of my foot and wrap yeah. like pull it, pull it towards my ankle bone as tight as I could. So it almost had my foot like kind of a little bit turned and yes. I would put it in my shoe and I'd go run anyways. And I, and it, it worked. It, it basically either fixed it to some degree or allowed me to run enough and I could run. So enough that's, that's then, called the reverse six. So that's yeah, a, that's a, I, that's a super no, useful taping job. Yeah. Back then there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't taping. That's there funny. wasn't like um, all these like other sports tapes. I just was like, I think if I pull this this way and a uh, you know, that like you go into CVS and they have that like old school sports tape. I was like, oh, just, yeah. A couple of times I use duct tape actually, which is not as good because that creates a burn blister, but <laughs> and that was more uncomfortable, but, um, uh, and that's, uh, yeah. So, uh, and now funny. there's much more advanced technology and information and physical therapy. Well, I mean, the poster <laughs> tibialis though, is it, I mean, that tendon is fascinating because it, what's happening with the post tib is it has the best lever to control your rate of pronation. So I know a lot of people have an issue with over pronation, which I'm not hundred percent sure what you mean when you say that. Um, like if we try to set up a setting, we're looking at feet, it's very difficult to do marker tracking on feet. And so the, the gold standard is actually to take and do cortical pins. So you actually burrow it into the, into the bone. So you can actually see what's happening around the, the foot and ankle, but it, it's such, there's such small joints. It's really hard to say if somebody's over pronating. So like I always, somebody comes in and they say they're over pronating. It's always confusing because it's, it's like, I'm not hundred percent sure what other people are seeing. Um, so what I always think of is if, can I get, can I get it to reduce by supporting certain structures? So like the post tip, for example, has the best lever, but if it, if it's dysfunctional, the first thing that you're going to do is you bury your big toe. Cause that's where your flexor house longest attaches. And it also has a lever. It's just not as functional. So if somebody's starting to get pain underneath, like their, their first met head, which is super common, or you're starting to get a whole bunch of blisters around your big toe. The first thing I go to is your post tip, activate post tip, use like a post tip brace, or do a, uh, do a modified Lodi reverse six, which is what you were just talking about. There's all sorts of different ways 
to basically just unload it. And once it's not hurting anymore, a lot of times it just self-corrects, which is, that's the, like, that's the, that's perfect. But if you're trying to get toe blisters and that's totally new and you're trying to get pain on that inside part where the post tibs at, that also might be your flush house longest. And so that's, that's also super treatable. Uh, and if you, if you start to see that you're burying and digging holes in your, in your, like the footbed and your shoe insert, uh, yeah, work the post tip. Yeah, so throw as many medical things as possible now, right? Um, I think I'm just going to jump in here and and try and cut Craig off because I know if we let him take the mic, who knows how long we'll keep. Yeah, I'll just keep for. going. And I'll, I'll go to bed, come back. I'll still be talking. It'll be crazy. <laughs> so totally true. That's embarrassing. Um, no, but unless Marilyn, you have any kind of final questions to to wrap this up, I think that was that was great. Uh, no, I think, I mean, it's super great conversation. I think, you know, you've given everyone um, such good food for thought to think about injuries differently because, you know, I think there's so much information out there and people also just get stuck in, no, this is exactly what we're supposed to do. Or there's these trends that they read about and then they try and self, you know, self-diagnose or self-treat. And I think, you know, you've given people a lot of, of different ways to think outside that, that sounds like the right path to go. And, and it also highlights the importance of finding someone who's really educated in sport when you get injury so that you're, you know, like you say, you've got the right team around you to, to keep you not only moving and improving, but like actually know how to handle these injuries so that you can Mm -hmm. be successful. And so I think if people are going to take, you know, the, we gave them so much great information today, but I think those are really key points that people need to to make sure that they get out of this whole conversation today. So, so thanks for, thanks for putting that all out there. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I, I do think if I had to say just one thing with injuries, just in closing, so I can just ramble on for another 30 minutes, right. That's how much time we got. No, it's the, the most common one where people think the first thing to do, if you, if you have an injury is to stretch it, we actually stretching once you have an injury is almost rarely the right answer. So if you think of like, if you start to categorize injuries and you do it along like tendon injury, uh, tenosynovitis, uh, disc injury, joint injury, nerve injury, like those five things, it, those are actually prov- prov- uh, provocation tests. We, so we do what are called stretch tests that actually make it worse. And so if you're finding that you're trying to stretch it because it feels tight, you're probably stretching something that's inflamed and irritated, and that's probably not helping. So that's probably the number one thing that if you, if you just get a diagnosis, and, and then the, I guess the second thing is just realize that, um, when you go in and you see a provider, make sure that the provider is actually doing what you're, you know, you can hold them accountable. So we all make mistakes. And if you have these like big goals and everything, they should be thinking of ways to make it so you can hit those goals and they're not infallible. They, they make, they make mistakes. And so it's more thinking like they're, they're your teammate, they're supposed to be supporting you, but they may not have all the right answers. And that's your responsibility to help them help you. So it's, I think that's the biggest thing is don't, don't just don't take a backseat to your, your care, make sure that they're, they're filling the need that you need. And the other big thing I feel like I heard you say is that there is that really big gray area between like just trying to ignore it and totally train through it or completely stopping. And I feel like those are kind of the two avenues that a lot of triathletes take. They just like grin and bear it. I'll be fine. Or I'm just, Oh, I'm just not going to run for the next three weeks. And then I'll just see what happens. But yeah, I, I think um, you've talked yeah, make, about a lot of a lot of make improvement. There. Yeah. yeah, I think if you completely stop, that's you can never trust that you actually solved what the problem is. You know, that's why to me taking an active approach is so, so effective. Because if if you 
if you conquer it with while you're being active, you now have a, a good idea if it comes back. But if it starts to build to come back again, you just did that for three weeks and then it starts to build again once you start to train again. You've just lost three weeks, if not more. You didn't and you didn't learn anything, which is I, I think that's a huge mistake. And that's you know, you can be more aggressive. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, yeah, I really appreciate you taking uh, six hours with us. It was great to, to catch up. And, uh... <laughs> that was not my fault. I was definitely. <laughs> that was, that my, was fault my fault before we started recording. I was like talking too much and asking too many questions. So <laughs> thanks for thanks for humoring all my questions pre-recording. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, we, we were supposed to start. We started at 11 and it's almost three. So that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um... where, where can people find you, Craig? Uh, if, if you want to work with our team, uh, you can look up smithperformancecenter.com, uh, schedule with any of our therapists. If, if you're looking for a support team, our health and human performance program, it can be a great option. Uh, we support a lot of triathletes as they, they make their, their, uh, uh, you know, put in their training plans. We, we, we really want run, want to be able to support athletes and people who want to be physically active for the whole life. Uh, so smithperformancecenter.com, uh, yeah, let us know if we can help you. Love to work with you. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Cool. Cheers.